Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Lottery Marathon winner is Jessica Wilcock of Glasgow, Scotland. Jessica will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Mark Blankenship. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And in recognition of the 30th anniversary of its premiere, we're looking at Law & Order Season 1, Episode 2, Subterranean Homeboy Blues. Fuck on charges pretty lame, don't you think? It's still mandatory jail time. She fired into a crowded subway car, for God's sake. Joining me to do that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcasts, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Kevin, I'm thrilled to be here, but where have you been? You weren't even here last week. I know. Well, look, here's the story. As a lot of our listeners may remember, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer over a year ago, and I had surgery, and that was great. But uh, they damage my voice mm. during the surgery. Yes. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an, an episode, episode from, from either, either criminal, criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And so for the past year, I've been really struggling. I had vocal surgery uh, about uh, three, four weeks ago. So uh, I'm sounding better, and I'll sound better than in the next coming weeks. I'm still kind of recovering. Uh, but hopefully... Um, I'm on the right track, and it sounds like Kevin Flynn again, and not some uh, guy who's been smoking. That's right. For uh, to a be long clear, time. the yeah. only reason I hosted last uh, episode was because you sounded like dog meat, but you sound great now. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks. Uh, somebody who always is in perfect voice is our guest, rounding out our panel from the Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs podcast and the new publication, The Flash Paper. It's Mark Blankenship. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello. I hope that my voice is as mellifluous as it was promised to be. <laughs> <laughs> you sound just as good as you did the last time you were on uh, the podcast. And I want to thank you for inviting me on Mark and Sarah. It's a podcast where you do your best to have fun with the nutty world of pop music. And I came on to discuss the dual narrative symbolism of Elvis Costello's Watching the Detectives. I think I blew it. I think you blew it. I do. Get with it over my head. <laughs> You're not, have you been invited back since then? That's the negative. Exactly. Negative. Exactly. I just want to say it was my voice, but it's not. No, but we loved having you. And honestly, that also got us, that episode got us into all of that uh, Duran Duran stuff as well, which was so interesting. Yes. So <laughs> it was great. It was a great to have you on that show. And I had such a good time the last time I was on your show. And I'm so glad to be back. Now, 30 years is a long time ago. Mm. Uh, Mark, does this episode scream, yeah, 
we can do a thousand more hours of this dunk dunk sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) You know, okay. I've spent so much of my life watching Law and Order that clearly I love the show. I'm going to be charitable and say if this were the only episode of Law and Order I'd ever seen, I would think, oh, that probably went off the air really fast. (laughs) Um, There are, I was fascinated by the number of things in this episode that would be important to the bones of future law and order episodes it was like watching the nucleus of law and order or like the little baby that hadn't quite formed yet and you could see if you squinted really hard how maybe four years later it would evolve into thing into the thing that we all loved and and are obsessed with still but this episode to me is definitely the we're figuring it out Era. You think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, you do know what they call that little baby that you don't really want anymore. Right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode. Law and Order, Season 1, Episode 2, Subterranean Homeboy Blues. Oh, post-80s New York subway system, where is thy sting? (laughs) The camera follows a young woman with a large bag nervously moving through the train. As she passes to the next car, she's followed by two black teenagers and their boombox. Well, it's not long before shots ring out, the passengers flee, the teens are on the ground, not dead, but their boombox is. Mm. You see the shooter? I did. Could you uh, describe him for me? Her. Her? What did she look like? A ballerina. Ballerina? Oh, yeah. Talk about your nutcracker, huh? Daryl Chenault is in surgery and is paralyzed. Michael Jones tells detectives Max Grevy and Mike Logan they weren't trying to stick up the shooter. The papers love the story of an avenging angel fighting back against crime on the subway. A witness remembers one of the teens had an ice pick and the woman's bag was from a ballet school. The cops learn a former dancer named Laura DiBiase fits the description of their shooter. During questioning, she admits to feeling threatened and fired in self-defense. Prosecutor Ben Stone and Captain Donald Cragen discuss what should she be charged with. Well, that's when Michael has the good sense to die. <laughs> Letting them to make the easy choice to charge her on murder, too. Okay, so this episode premiered September 20th, 1990, two years after the pilot was shot mm. and uh, turned down by CBS and Fox. The original title, Catch Em and Cook Em. No. Yep. Whoa. Are you kidding? No. Catch Em and Cook Em that was, was supposed to be a death penalty show? No, in fact, even uh, <laughs> Stone has a line in this episode where he refers to that. Cops try to catch them, and I try to cook them. It's my job. Wow. That's uh, a terrible name for a show. That yeah. isn't about fishing. Yeah, catch them and cook them special victims unit was probably <laughs> not going not to happen. Uh, so the first half is supposed to be a murder mystery. The second half of the show is supposed to be a moral mystery. And they kept that format, but they changed some other things. Oh, yeah, by the way, you know, while everyone else's New York cop shows were shot in Hollywood at the time, mm. being on location and shooting handheld and 16 millimeter along with socially relevant story matter, that's what made the Law and Order universe what it is today. But a couple things about this opening sequence that we won't see in the future. The setup is a long, yes. interspersed shot of Laura moving through the subway car. 
changing trains. It takes forever to get the crime. Today, it would have been a shot of two guys on the train talking about how the Yankees suck, and then they hear shots, and they rush to see the bodies. They, you wouldn't have seen all of this this stuff, right? They, Mark, they would have done that very differently in another season. I was astonished at how long it took anything to happen. The amount of mood setting that went down. It, it, and one of the reasons also that I realized later that it's really great that they usually get to the crime through these cameo characters is because the way that they set this up, it totally tells us visually that we're supposed to be agreeing with Laura. We spend mm. so much time with Laura that we sympathize with her because we are seeing this entire subway trip through her experience. And that tips the scales, I think, of the entire episode in a way that is almost disastrous for my experience as a viewer. Uh, also, I'm not saying that I am, am part of the ADD generation, but can we just get on with it? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I got, I don't, I don't have many places to be in quarantine, but I've got a few places to be. Right. <laughs> I mean, this opening sequence, it was really trying very hard to be arty. That's mm-hmm. all I kept thinking was, this is arty. This is literally like if a first-year film student had to do a project and it was like terror on the subway. Yes. This is exactly how it would have been shot. Yeah. With like ham-fisted shots of like a groping and like, you know, people bumping up next to one another. It was just very, very arty. And that was contrasted incredibly by the total cheesiness of the next scene, which was incredible. The way that music, when they're walking on the stairs, that like, boop, 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 boop. <laughs> right. They got two detectives coming down right now. How you doing, fellas? <laughs> right, right. Totally. The camera follows <laughs> Grievy and Logan from the sidewalk through the turnstile down the stairs. Look, later on the scene, we just start with them on the train. Right. At the crime scene. Yep. As opposed to hey, we're doing all this stuff. And they would have a shot that they pretty much pioneered called, they called it literally the oneer, hmm. where it's one camera. Instead of doing the thing, we cut back and forth with everybody's dialogue. They will go in, handheld one camera, and just swing around. Everybody says their lines. Very documentary style. Hmm. You know, when you think about Law and & Order, you think back, you go, oh, yeah, that's right. Every time, you know, Briscoe and Green show up, that's the shot that they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I think obviously what they're trying to do, and you know, they got rid. If it was good, they got rid of all that. You know, sort of, we're going to fill forty-five seconds of watching these guys walk into the subway. I think that they're trying to, you know, plant a flag. This is what this show is going to be. It's different than it's cinematic. Right. Yes. It's going to be different than what's on network TV. It's yes. going to be shaky handheld cameras, right? We've all seen Mean Streets, and we want you to know that we've seen Mean Streets. But, you know, <laughs> right. and, and even though you can't go back again and we can't ever see this show with fresh eyes now, this episode, I can imagine that for someone who was raised on a diet of Barney Miller, that this might have felt pretty <laughs> remarkable to see. Hmm. Well, you got Hardcastle and McCormick, and you got this. It's gritty. <laughs> Before we move forward, I do also have to, as a New Yorker now, just take a moment to quibble with the subway logic of this of this scene, because they keep hearing you keep hearing announcements that clearly indicate that they are on the ACE line. Next stop, 14th Street. Change for the uptown local. But then mm. the subway that they're on, that she is on, is clearly the G at Hoyt Skammerhorn in Brooklyn. And I just feel like if you're going to go through the trouble of filming on location could you just 
you just just make the announcements be for the Brooklyn line. I don't care where they are, but I, I can see that it's not on the ACE. And I know that's a complete New Yorker thing, but it, it drove me crazy. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what drove me crazy was her train transfer, walking out of one train, turning around, walking on the train, going the opposite direction, on the same platform. Isn't that the same train just going in a different direction? Yes, tension? exactly. Oh. <laughs> yes. That's not how transfers work, people. <laughs> and they, and they also, Very confusing. They, they also don't show up 15 seconds after your train arrives. Never that lucky. Hey, did anyone recognize the song on the boombox? Oh, I did some no. research on that song's provenance, in fact. Oh, really? Do tell. Yes, because ironically enough, it is a song by Ice-T. This is a song called Rhyme Syndicate Coming Through that was on a compilation album that Ice-T released with his Rhyme Syndicate crew. It was an album that he was using to introduce a lot of artists that he thought should be more famous, including Everlast, who went on to be in the band House of Pain. So one of those members of that crew really did go on to something bigger. But I just thought it was awesome that Ice-T is in the first episode of, well, the second episode of Law & Order. Reaction, Rebecca? I'm dumbfounded. You're dumbfounded. That with the uh, cheapness that with so much of this seems to have been put together, uh, that they would have paid to license a song by Ice-T. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it paid off dividends for Ice-T down the road. <laughs> uh, so the lyrics, uh, you want trouble? We got it. You hear gun? We shot it. Mm. Wrecking and dancing and suckers dancing with Jackson. My Glock is crazy respecting, collecting the check and dissing, dogging. Microphone hogging. Mwah, it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first thing that did not age well. Max Grevy's use of Ebonics. Oh, God, when they're in the hospital. My partner asked her for some apple, and she shot him. It's that simple. Axed or demanded? Axed. Axed? Yeah. Mm. It, oh. Yeah. I mean, there's something else that didn't age well. What's that? Why is that witness still on the train when everybody else is gone? Yeah. <laughs> this one lady. Everybody else ran off the train. You know, one yeah. lady. They're like, why is she still sitting well, there? Well, the subway line is shut down. And mm. she's like, I've got four more stops to go and I can't go anywhere. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. <laughs> yeah. And then there's more dialogue for uh, a woman of color where she says, That's how come I see nice ice pick. Ice pick? What ice pick? The one with the Yankees cap. I'm a Mets fan. I hate the Yankees. And he's waving an ice pick. And I'm thinking, what's this for? It's all automatic ice cubes now. We heard it was a screwdriver. I seen what I seen. I seen what I seen. Yes. But let's talk a little about that scene for a second. Um, She notices that the teen was carrying an ice pick. She believed it was an ice pick, Mm -hmm. which she thought was suspicious because... It's all automatic ice cubes these days. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs an ice pick? Just put it in the freezer. I wouldn't even know what an ice pick looked like. I'm going to be totally honest with you. In two ways, this scene is a crucial building block of future law and orders. One, you have someone who's a, quote, old-time New Yorker who's afraid of technology. They hadn't yet had an opportunity to become terrified of the internet on this show, but they could Mm. be terrified of automatic ice. Yeah, my God. Progress. <laughs> no. Uh, By the way, did anyone notice that uh, she had a toddler on a leash? Yes. <laughs> She's like, you gotta be, you gotta watch them wherever they go. She wasn't walking anywhere. She wasn't in a mall. She was, she was on a stoop. sitting on a stoop, <laughs> reeling back in. <laughs> it wasn't like the baby was gonna go into an orange Julius if she. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's start with our hey, it's that guy in this okay. episode. Hey, it's. 
That guy. Can you name the guy Rebecca playing Sergeant Greevy? Computer came up with 12 felons named Michael Jones. Michael J, Michael Ray, Michael T. I hate walk-ups. Uh, would that be George Zunza? Yeah, George Zunza, <laughs> who really came to this as a, hey, it's that guy. Mm. Uh, before 1990, which was when this episode came out, he was in bit parts in a million things, including the Deer Hunter. But according to the rest of the cast, Zunza, spelled with a D, D is Zunza, was mean mm. and a bastard and very difficult. Wow. Really? Yeah, very difficult. He and Chris Noth hated each other. I love it. Tell me uh, more. <laughs> Dan Florek hated him. The cat. Everybody hated him. Dan Florek hated him. Oh yeah. One time, he thought that uh, Chris Noth had slighted him. Yeah. So he went into his trailer and would not come out for a half an hour. Zenza's trailer. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. I got to tell you, I I want to hear more of these stories. This we could do this whole episode okay. just about George Zenza being a dick. Okay. Just very briefly. In part, it may have been because his family was in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and he had to commute to New York. His wife was pregnant at the time. He was. Very unhappy about that. And they became very unhappy when it was clear to him this was going to be an ensemble show. Right. And they said not the George Zunza show, even right. though he's first. But in general, he was just a big fucking dick. Wow. How do you think he felt about Dan Florick then being on this franchise for like 25 years and making millions of dollars? By the way, Dan Florick, when this episode was filmed, I looked it up was 40 yeah. Whoa. and still looks like 62 years old. He has looked exactly yeah. the same for decades. That's what being bald does for you. <laughs> you know, this also speaks to the fact that in the first episode of season two, Grievy gets murdered in his front yard by the mob. And that yeah. is what better way of the show saying to Zunza, you're not welcome back than mm. by having him executed in the first episode of season two. Don't get any ideas about a special guest appearance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, so Zunza is written out of the show after the first season. He That has happened to him two other times. Really? Because yeah. he's a dick. Because he's a dick. How is it that Harvey Weinstein can like get women never to be hired again just by saying, she's difficult. But yeah. a guy who can be like a dick can keep getting hired over and over again. That is the... $10 million question right there. <laughs> well, it's people who haven't listened to our podcast. <laughs> Quick, get Zunza on the line. <laughs> get his agent. We gotta have more Zunza. I mean, he's not like like a great actor. I mean, no. you can literally see him acting on the show. You can see him acting. Yeah. Uh, we also get to see somebody before they were famous. We do. Before they were who is playing Subway Vigilante Laura DiBiase? Well, that would be future gubernatorial candidate Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very surprised that footage from the show was not used by her opponents in that campaign. <laughs> My lawyer? Do I look like I could afford to have a personal lawyer? Anyway, I don't need one. I haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> she is the law and order candidate, literally. It's so appropriate that... This episode, the first person you see is a future megastar. Like, that's, that's what right. we come to Law & Order for at this point. Tony, Emmy, and Grammy winner. You know her from Sex and the City. Future co-star, Chris Noth, reads her what kind of rights? Miranda, Miranda. rights! Oh, my God! Yeah, It was meant to be. She has appeared once in each Law & Order franchise, including the second-to-last episode of Criminal Intent, where she played a character named Amanda Rollins. Really? Yeah. <laughs> a name they just put aside for future use. No, that was a good one. Put the put that in the, <laughs> the like top that drawer. <laughs> we have a hey, it's that girl. Hey, it's 
That girl. Who is the actress playing public defender Shambhala Green? That is Lorraine Toussaint. Detached reflection cannot be demanded in the presence of an uplifted knife or screwdriver. Uh, this is the first of seven appearances for her um, as uh, the intellectually spirited and sexually charged relationship with Stone continues to grow. <laughs> You know her most most recently uh, as playing V, uh, Red's deadly nemesis in season two of Orange is the New Black. Yeah, that's not how I know her. How do you know her? From Any Day Now with Annie Potts, yes. a sitcom that I actually watched. Ah, it was on <laughs> Lifetime. Wow. <laughs> because I'm a sucker and like literally my whole life would watch anything that Annie Potts was in. Did she get written out of the uh, first season? or No. No, okay. <laughs> she stuck around. How about our witness with the kid on a leash? Unless you're defending your own self. You saying it was self-defense? I seen what I seen. Yes, that is Tony Award winner Tanya Pinkins, who uh, is really just theatrical royalty. And that's, I, I know I keep talking about them, but that's yet another building block. Somebody who is theater famous has a small role on Law & Order. Hit that bingo square. Mm. Yeah, well, it was good for her because she went from this guest appearance to playing Livia Fry on All My Children. Really? For many, many years. We've also seen her in Gotham, Fear the Walking Dead, Madam Secretary, and Enchanted. Mm. How about uh, the intern? Which intern? The guy who came and said, I got a woman down the hall, can't stop talking about her. <laughs> no, I don't know who that is. No, I don't either. That's Tim Kelleher. He did the voice of Raphael in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Oh, oh so he's a three. big star. He's a big star. Is that yeah. Turtles in Time? I don't. If you know that, fuck off. I, I'm pretty sure that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three is when they go back to the samurai era. <laughs> Somehow they travel through time. <laughs> the reason he got the job is because contract negotiations for the first Raphael apparently broke down. Really? I'm just guessing. <laughs> Why would you need a new Raphael? To, well, he's like, no, man, I can't. Uh, Maybe the bullshit. original Raphael was a dick, and they just wanted to write him exactly. Off. It's George Sunza. <laughs> All right, so everybody in this episode is shouting at each other. All the time. Yes. You know, you've got a wise mouth. Now, I told you for the tenth time, I'm a police officer. Let's get this straight. Detective Mike Logan. That girl was revenging the earlier attack, and self-defense does not allow for revenge. And I'm telling you, I'm not interested in a discussion. I want to know where she is. I forgot. You guys in the DA's office are a regular bunch of Carnax. Do you have any other personal views on this subject you'd like to air before we walk into court and Ms. Shambhala Green hands us our asses on a platter? So maybe you should lighten up on the tube. Nobody likes a wise ass in a wheelchair. Oh, my God. I have underlined in my notes so much righteous shouting. <laughs> it's like being in Pittsburgh where the accent is just yelling. Yeah. Logan's screaming on the phone. Everyone's screaming. Screaming, screaming, screaming. 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 Anybody like each other in this? I... Are we supposed to think that they get along? I mean, especially Grievy and Logan. They get into an argument about whether Laura is justified because the victims look guilty. Hmm. It's all that simple, huh? When it comes to the law, it better be. Jones doesn't even have a record. He says he was sitting down when she shot him. Oh, yeah. He's such an innocent-looking guy, Max. Oh, that's terrific. You're under arrest for looking guilty. That's a cheap shot. The hell it is. That kind of thinking you can't do the job. When it comes to the law, everybody's the same. That's when it works. This is really the theme of this yes. episode, which is, should you white people be afraid of black people on the subway? And also, crime is very high. Can we defend ourselves? What does that mean? It's very much of 1990, 
But that's the argument. Does it hold up? Well, I'll tell you, what really surprised me is to see Grievy, at least for a period of time in this episode, after the whole, quote, Ebonic scene, not being racist for a short period of time. Like, he's the pushback on both Cragen and Logan saying, like, everybody deserves justice. Everybody's the same. We should all be the same. We should treat these cases the same. I was very surprised at that protracted righteousness Mm -hmm. from this character that I know almost nothing about and it turns out is in real life as a dick. Uh, But, you know, he's right. And everyone else just seems to completely not even understand why it's problematic. Well, that happens to flip on Grievy. His attitude changes after getting a phone call that his daughter got roughed up at school. Relax, relax. Just tell me what happened. But then why worry about it? Yeah. Well, we'll talk about it later, okay? Uh, I'll get home as soon as I possibly can, okay? What? That's nice. Oh, I thought it might have been something. Apparently she got shoved by kids on the basketball team, and you know what that's code for. Yeah. They were tall. That's right. Very tall. Mm, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what that's code for. Yeah, I thought that it showed some of the discordant impulses in the writing of this episode where they were so adamant it seemed about getting every conceivable viewpoint shoved into one 45 minute episode that they just let characters be completely different from scene to scene to scene i just felt like i was getting moral whiplash from what the show was asking me to think about and it's it really felt like they were less interested in sustained uh, rational character development than they were in sort of high school debate class uh, politics. And it was very Mm. frustrating, but it made me appreciate how much more sophisticated the show would get later at apportioning out these various arguments into the mouths of the characters who might actually say them. You know, last sort of, you know, interesting point here from the first half. All of a sudden, Michael Jones just dies. (laughs) He was fine. He was fine. Yes. <laughs> the guy goes through, like, one of the other guy goes through, like, this horrible surgery. Like, why couldn't they just have oh, him not make it? You mean the horrible perfect. surgery with the stock footage of surgery that oh we were treated to in this episode? Oh, come on, come on, get the let out. What's the hurry? This guy won't be running a marathon. That was so grainy. It was clear that they had paid $40 to just get that from the, the archives of some bio class. <laughs> some, like, surgery channel. Like, there's, like, yeah. a training video for, like, yeah. anesthesiologists. And then they dub in, like, dialogue, and one was, ah, this guy's not running a marathon anytime soon. <laughs> Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. And now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Well, what's the difference between self-defense and murder, too? According to Adam Schiff, it depends on the real motive. Did she think these guys were a threat because they were street toughs or because they were black? I can't answer that. All I know is that self-defense requires that the response be in direct proportion to the threat. The threat as she reasonably perceives it. If she thinks that she is about to be raped, can she kill her attacker? The law says... Yes, absolutely. 
And what if her perception is wrong? If we let her go, do you realize what we are unleashing in this city? ADA Paul Robinette learns from one of Laura's co-workers that she had been attacked on the subway before. That assault ended her dancing career, and she was afraid of all those little black bastards. Mm. That's a quote, by the way. Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> Defense attorney Shambhala Green tells Stone that Laura shot the teens because she was about to be raped, even though, as he puts it, it was only asking... Hmm. It's just like an ask. Sergeant Grevy reports murder victim Michael Jones was really famous street tough Mosquito Moskin. And now even he thinks the shooting was justified. The trial begins in a very smoky courtroom <laughs> for some reason. With Stone saying, hey, if you're afraid of getting raped, maybe you shouldn't live in New York City. <laughs> and even though uh, they were in court that day, Robinette finally gets a warrant to search Laura's apartment. (laughs) He finds her firing range targets and her marksmanship has improved to where she can now unload the entire clip at the target's heart and dick. Mm. So had she been preparing for the shooting all along? On the stand, Laura says the teens asked her for a taste. Stone shocks the court by revealing she shot Darnell a second time and said, here's your taste. Green asks then if... She can restage the incident. That's when, out of the deep recesses of the gallery, walk in two large black men who prowl up to the witness chair and ask Laura for a taste, and it's exactly as cringeworthy as you think it is. (laughs) A helpful citizen comes forward to say Mosquito attempted to take a bite out of her, too, and Darnell confirms it. This changes things for Stone, who offers to drop the murder charge. In the end, Laura gets a suspended sentence, and Stone wonders whether they did the right thing. Okay, the episode is Subterranean Homeboy Blues. I think it's actually a very clever play on the title of the Bob Dylan song, Subterranean Homesick Blues. You know that one, Rebecca? I do. It's the one with the cards that NXS stole uh, for the video. Yeah. yeah, for their Mediate video. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Hmm. Okay, Paul Robinette, yes. who does all the legwork. And by the way, there's like this where they do the, the dunk dunk card and it's, you know, the screen is all uh, black. He dubs the act, had the actor dub in a line before the scene started. No, ma'am, I'm not a policeman. I work for the district attorney's office. Because I think people were like, well, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> because he's like, why, why is he investigating? Because is we never he... see him in any scenes with Stone previous to this. Right. We have yeah. no way to know. He's, right. Yeah. The conceit of the show is you got That's what that character is supposed to do and right. has always done. Right. It's like, OK, let me. Are you sure he's not in the police department? Because he is the one executing a search warrant on a suspect's house later. Yeah, the cops are just standing around looking at her <laughs> orgasm books. And by the way, why are they executing the search warrant while she's on trial? This makes no sense. That's my question. <laughs> well, we all know that these trials happen a week after the crime, so maybe that's just Hours a little too fast. After the crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say something? Yeah. You, you mentioned in your intro there about the courtroom being smoky and like every room in this in this uh, yeah, whole which was show a very peculiar cinematic choice. Yeah. Can we just talk about too, like what total shitholes every single hospital was in this episode? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> like the idea of like being ill and going to any of these places. Oh my God! No, no, no! Every room was full of smoke. Literally, people smoking. It was. It was yeah. not a good scene. Mark, it's, I guess now it's very obvious why Michael just died randomly. It was a <laughs> shitty hospital. Yeah, well, because the the surgeon had been ashing into his open wound, and <laughs> then how was he supposed to recover from that? 
<laughs> that's worse than a junior mint. That's right. And <laughs> that's the nurses exactly there right. like refer to all the black kids as what? Little black bastards, right? Yes. Well, actually, that was <laughs> that which she kind of left it hanging. Robinette provided that yes, line. Yes, yes. Well, what was her reaction to the attack? Same as anybody's. She was fearful, resentful of all the little... Little what? Little black bastards? You see some black teenagers on the train, are you automatically afraid of them, Miss Maltese? Aren't you? So they try to insert into this racist nurse character this argument about how if rednecks came after Paul Robinette, he would be afraid of them and maybe shoot them. And it's just like that argument is so flawed, but they treat it as though it is just a win in the interesting points column. And uh, again, it's like, maybe don't try to put so much into the show because then it's so distracting when I'm like, but, but wait a minute. There's, there, there's like eight things about what this nurse just said that doesn't that don't really track. But the show is like and zing moving on. That's right. That's right. Well, it's interesting because this is going to be set this up as something that the character is going to be confronted with time and time again. And basically, whose side are you on? Yes, that's right. Uh, there was an excellent article in the AV Club on Robinette embracing his blackness. Stone told him at one point he had to decide whether he was a black man who was a lawyer or a lawyer was a black man. And the article talks about how it isn't until he leaves the show and comes back as the defense attorney that he embraces his revolutionary blackness. In a way, they kind of held him back on that part of his character. And especially at a time now where you would have a character like that, this is the point the article made, is that it's not one or the other. He is a black man who happens to be a lawyer. That's right. It's a false equivalence yeah. to try to like remove the blackness ever from a, right. from a black person because it's not something that, you know, it's it's not that there's, there's no like part of any person of color's life where they are not a person of color and whether or not they're a lawyer or not. That's a very very bad thing that Ben Stone said to Paul Robinette. By the way, can I just ask a, like, a, like a broader question? Yeah. Every time you make me watch one of these old ass episodes <laughs> with Ben Stone, <laughs> I really don't understand why yeah. people like him. Well, here's the thing, and Mark, see if you can back me up on this. Unlike McCoy, whose thing is, I'm going to win at any cost right. and get very creative with the law, Stone is, you know, as his name implies, he is very rigid on his interpretation of the law, whether that benefits him or not. And we see that here, where he is willing, he won't budge on this until things change and then he will budge on it right he will change dramatically he discloses evidence right yeah. so it's very much sort of in stone's character i believe for him to have the opinion paul you, you just need to be part of the law regardless of who you know the circumstance and the mitigating circumstances around race and you know economics and who what you bring to it it has to just be this yeah which you know ought to be a point of conflict with the robinette character uh, they really did try to make Stone be a character who kind of never really re returned. He was a fuss budget. Like, he was very neat, very tidy. He would refer to everyone as sir or ma'am. It's like he was trying to be Atticus Finch. And mm -hmm. the show kind of ran out of things to do with his uh, stick-up-the-ass idealism. And, that's, and then when Jack comes on, and he's like you've said 
Kevin. He's just like, I'm going to bend the rules. I'm going to give him the Jack McCoy fix. Like that ended up opening up a lot more dramatic possibilities, I think, than what mm-hmm. they were sort of hamstrung with. And I have read, too, that Michael Moriarty really didn't want Ben Stone to change, that he wanted mm. to keep Ben Stone like that. Because I think Ben Stone, I mean, uh, Michael Moriarty could be described charitably as an eccentric fellow. He's bananas. Yeah. Rebecca, the next time we do one of these era episodes, I'm going to give you the George Zunza treatment on Michael Moriarty, <laughs> and your mind is going to be fucking dead. <laughs> Brace yourself. Hold on to your panties. Yeah. Brace yourself. So there is this scene at that apartment during that search warrant where Laura arrives. What have you got against me? I'm sorry? I don't understand why you hate me. Look, I'm not free to dis- I don't. Of course I don't. Then why are you- Look, we really shouldn't be having this conversation, Mr. Biasi. I wouldn't shoot you. I wouldn't shoot you. You. Yeah. Meaning (laughs) either, hey, you're not a menacing black person or you're one of the good ones, which neither of those are really great arguments. No, they're both terrible. Yeah. (laughs) They're both on their face racist. I think I want to give the writers the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that they're suggesting that she's right to think that way. But again, like they just don't flesh it out enough. So it's like all of these things are just hanging there and it's like. They have the dreaded good intentions uh, behind what they're writing, but good intentions cannot overcome the fact that one of their big aha dramatic twists is when the black defense attorney brings in menacing black men to confront the white woman in the box. Like That doesn't play the way that they want it to play. It plays to me as so inflammatory and tone deaf, and uh, it's just like, y'all, you tried it, but whew, lord. Oh, we we will get to that in a moment, but let's start with this trial. In his opening argument, Stone basically says, hey, maybe Laura's too much of a pussy to ride this subway. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> if Miss DiBiase is so threatened by urban life, perhaps she could have avoided the subway. Objection! That did not play very well. <laughs> Don't want to get raped? Maybe you shouldn't live here. Okay. So, Marka, you live in New York, so obviously you're not afraid of getting raped. I mean, I guess not. And I live in, like, the middle of Midtown, and uh, I take the subway consistently, so maybe I'm naive. But uh, so far, so good. You're terribly brave. You're terribly brave. I am terribly, terribly brave. I mean, the other thing is that I always have two kids on leashes to protect me from anyone who might drink So, oh, look at those rabid children. You better not. That's right. Better not ask him for a taste. (laughs) Can I just tell you, I really do think that Cynthia Nixon's character, Laura, like totally messed up what would have been a much better punchline when she shot those guys. Objection, Your Honor. Why did you shoot Darnell Chenault a second time, Miss DiBiase? I was petrified. I wanted to make sure. So you said, here's your taste. You said, here's your taste. That sounds rather cool. Objection, Your Honor. No further questions. Oh, I thought it was pretty cool. Even even Stone says, that sounds pretty cool. He does. But, like, they say what? How about a uh, taste, baby? How about a taste, baby? She should have been like, taste this. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that better than, here's your taste? I'm just saying. It tastes this. It's a better retort. Do you want original flavor or diet (laughs) maybe she had a background uh working in some sort of restaurant and so she just sort of fell back on what she had been trained to say when she was passing out apps that's right here's your (laughs) amuse-bouche pardon my reach (laughs) so to make points with the jury as you say green wants to reenact the shooting Mm. proceed miss green so she signals to the bailiff in the back who without saying a word 
who opens the door and waiting right there on cue are two black guys dressed like Wesley Snipes in New Jack City. And they slowly make their way to the stand. Again, a lot of network time just ticking away while they slowly make their way to the stand. How about a taste, baby? Oh, man, what the homeboy's doing knocking for the white folks? Uh, what can be said about this scene? Well, I have a lot to say about it because I know why they did it. But I do love the fact that they've rebranded them the Crime Stoppers. Instead of the Guardian, Guardian Angels? Angels? Yes. yes. <laughs> All right, uh, Rebecca, I'll let you go first. All right, so can I say why they did it? Go, well, sure. Am I spoiling the episode if I say that? No, I mean, I think everybody knows what the rip from the headline That's is right. going so, to be. That's right. So in the Bernard Getz trial... His defense actually did do this. They tried to restage the intimidation that Bernie Getz must have felt by using guardian angels, like black members of the guardian angels, to like do this weird demonstration, racist demonstration in the courtroom of like people hassling someone on the subway. It was crazy that it was allowed. It was super prejudicial. When you sort of watch it now, you're like, Nope, that would never, ever fly. But that really happened in real life. But in this show, what's weird is, what's the demonstration? She's in the witness box and they just walk up to her? Like, And they say something very intimidating and charged, which yeah. is, you know, how about a taste, baby? Right. Mark, how do you think the uh, national audience in September 1990 uh, would have reacted to seeing that scene? I, I grew up in the South. And I know for a fact that this is the type of scene that would have made many of the people around whom I grow up say, see, she was right. She ought to blast, <laughs> she ought to blast him right in the damn face. And that, and I, it doesn't matter that there's the, the character in the wheelchair, the, the victim of the shooting is pointedly yelling about how these black men are siding against other black men. Like, why are you on the side mm. of the, the white people? That guy doesn't have enough of an impact on the scene to overcome that. And I just think that it doesn't matter how much sort of subtle stuff the episode is trying to do to suggest that this is the wrong move. The fact is, that is the moment that is played for the most dramatic impact in the entire second half of the show. And just like that opening at the beginning, when you see the camera track her through the subway, we are asked to empathize with her. They have built the whole episode around her point of view. And... It just is a moment where you've got, I I just suspect that there were lots of white viewers of the show who crossed their arms and nodded their head and made that little "Mm," sound when they're like, damn right. And I can't Mm. say that for sure, but I, watching it and feeling like I'm being asked to see the world through Laura's eyes makes me suspect that. Well, I think it was, you know, a somewhat inspired choice to retell this, but with Bernie Getz as a woman, Mm. because it does open up. You know, other narrative other possibilities, types of threats. other types of threats, namely being raped. But in the end, it comes down to the original theme, which was about racism. Yeah. Hmm. But I tell you, you know what that reenactment didn't have? What? Two guys getting shot in the fucking face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Well, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the Headlines. This episode draws its plot from the case of Bernie Getz. In December 1984, four Bronx teens were on the two train heading to Manhattan to rob a video arcade. When Getz got on at 14th Street, the teens surrounded him and asked for $5. Getz stood up, pulled out a 38 revolver and fired five shots left to right. Two of the teens were struck in the arm, one in the chest, Daryl Cabey was hit on the side and left paralysed. Getz jumped the tracks, fled through a subway tunnel, then skipped town. The press went into a frenzy over the story, dubbing the unknown assailant the Subway Vigilante. At first, New Yorkers, fed up with a high crime rate, expressed support for the shooter. Eight days later, Getz surrendered. After a grand jury cleared him, a police report came out claiming Getz said to Cady, here's another before shooting him a second time. Racist statements also came back to haunt him. Public opinion about the subway vigilante quickly changed, and the second grand jury indicted him for an attempted murder. Bernie Getz was cleared of that charge, but served eight months for illegal firearms possession. <laughs> Okay, so after the four teens were shot and there was panic in the subway car, Getz stopped to help two old women who had been knocked over. He talked to them to make sure they were okay because, see, Ma, he's a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> in, the, in, an, in an argument for true self-defense, a person can use force to neutralize a threat but also has an obligation to flee. And for what it's worth, that story about here's another is not true. Both sides agree that that actually never happened. But it's rumor changed public sentiment to turn away from him being a folk hero to something more sinister. I, I feel like the fact that public opinion turned against him gives one a little bit of hope because maybe our thirst for vigilante justice isn't as strong as we think it is once we take a beat to think about it. And the fact that that type of rumor could so quickly populate and change the conversation, um, I, I want to believe that there's something good to be said about humanity because of that. I think it's very much of its time. I mean, we're talking in the 80s, right? Yeah. And in the 80s, yeah. like, I'm not saying racism was better. Uh, it was a better situation in the 80s. But people weren't so comfortable with the use of the N-word and weren't so comfortable being overtly racist as they seem to be in 2020 back in 1984. And another big reason that sentiment changed was because his history of using the N-word at like co-op board meetings yeah, and right. his, the tapes of his interrogation came out and the public actually saw he is in fact a racist. Yeah. Well, you know, at the time of poll, 52% of New Yorkers agreed that they they approved of what he did as as much as they may dislike or not dislike the idea of racism. They disliked street crime a whole lot more, hmm. and this was uh, this was of a, a zeitgeist of a, of a moment. There's a great uh, documentary called Trial by Media, mm -hmm. which covers this case, and Fear City also. I mean, lays down the fact that crime had gone it tripled in New York City. It was you know dropped dead and all this other stuff it was not a pleasant place to be. People were upset. And that was the that was the original reaction. 
was pretty universal. Yeah, I you know I don't want to get roughed Good up. Good for him. Good for him. <laughs> and it took I think a long time for that, and that might really explain his light sentence. But his civil trial hmm. was held eleven years later in 1996. A much different time. Yeah. And it focused squarely on the racial issues, including Getz's racial statements. Uh, Daryl Cabby won $43 million. Uh, I say that it really took that span of time and the refocusing for a jury to convict. Hmm. Yeah, but he hasn't paid a penny of that money. It's true, he hasn't paid a penny. <laughs> but Mark, I, you know, I would suppose that a civil trial in 1985, a jury wouldn't award them anything. And if it was a criminal trial that waited till 1996, a criminal jury very likely would have convicted him of something more serious. I mean, again, uh, that makes sense to me. That seems, as best as I can recall, being alive in the 80s, like how it would have gone. And sadly, based on the way things are now, yeah, like it, it does seem like that in the 90s, perhaps he would have gotten away with a lot less. Hmm. Newsweek says that today Bernie Getz spends his time uh, nursing injured squirrels. Now, we heard in our last episode how Casey Anthony spends her time photographing squirrels. Yes. I smell a new buddy comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Mark Blankenship. Mark, where can our listeners follow you online? Oh, well, you can find me at markg, as in Garrett, blankenship.com. You can find me on Twitter at I am Blankenship. And you can find that publication you heard mentioned at theflashpaper.com. And Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? On Twitter or Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn, as in Patrick, Kevin Patrick. And you can also tweet to us. Garrett. <laughs> so specific. <laughs> tweet to us at Law and Order Pod. Follow us on Instagram. These are the stories podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for Criticism and Commentary. Special thanks to the Elite Squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega and Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Hey, wash your hands.